You're listening to the sermon podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, beloved, what we do is derived from who we are. That was stated earlier in the service, but I'll say it again. What we do is derived from who we are. Instinctively, we think differently. We think, at least in some way, what we do determines our identity. It's how we process. But that does not hold biblically. It doesn't hold biblically when it comes to our natural fallen condition. You know this, so do I. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Who we are in Adam results in sinful conduct. This is what the scriptures teach. The idea that what we do determines who we are does not hold when it comes to being Christians either. We are not Christians because of what we do. We are Christians because of what we believe about Jesus. We are Christians because God has made us alive together with Christ. Through faith, we are in Christ. That's the most common way that you and I are referred to in the New Testament. In Christ. We are united to him. And here's the thing. So antennas up right now. That identity in Christ determines our duty. That identity in Christ determines and tells us and changes everything about how we are to live. There are no ways that a person can live that will make him or her a Christian. But upon being born again and united to Christ, there are ways that the redeemed live. And we get to consider those things today. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 8 of Romans 12. As you're turning, for 11 chapters, Paul has effectively expounded the gospel for 11 chapters. At points, he has helped us understand the law in the gospel and how those things are complementary in God's plan of salvation. And he now turns, beginning in Romans 12, 1, to consider how the saints are to live in light of all of that. So I'm pretty excited. I'm geeked up to think about these things over the next number of weeks. I hope that you are too. I hope that should the Lord tarry and give us life at the end of this series, as we make our way through the next several chapters, that we will have a better understanding of how we're to live And we will have more confidence and joy and hope than we've ever had in going about and doing it. That's my prayer. So let's look to the text. Romans chapter 12, 
verses 1 through 8. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word. My plan today is to consider this text, to preach this message in four points, and I'll give them to us one at a time as we make our way. Point one, I've entitled it, Because of Christ, Live Well. Because of Christ, Live Well. We're going to look at verses one and two. We're going to be here for just a moment. You can put your eyes on verse one. How does Paul begin this new section, as it were, of his letter? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, dot, dot, dot. Notice the way that Paul writes to the saints in Rome. First, he is their brother. They are his brothers and sisters in the Lord. So he, as an apostle, understands that he, like them, is a debtor to grace. He is one of them. He too has been adopted into the family of God because of God's mercy. He has been given a unique position as an apostle and clearly means to steward that well. And this is the furthest thing from lording it over his hearers. You remember the words of Christ. May those who lead, may those who are great among you not lord it over those whom they lead like the Gentiles do. This is not how we roll in the church. Paul is a model of warmth and benevolence in the way that he addresses the saints. This is instructive for us in all of our dealings with the faithful. He appeals to them, though. You can see this on the basis of what he has already written. You see that with the word therefore, right? He appeals to them on the basis of what he has expounded for 11 chapters, i.e., the gospel. Union with Christ, the one plan of God to save a people from before the foundations of the world. He appeals to them based on all of that. And he appeals to them, you see that phrase, on the basis of the mercies of God. So when he is getting ready to talk about how we're to live, he makes the appeal on the basis of God's mercy. Don't miss this. 
This is how the apostles, plural, write to the saints holistically. If you spend time reading the New Testament epistles, this is how the apostles write. We have referred to it in this church at many points as the apostolic pattern, how the apostles write to the churches. It's worth noting. What does that pattern look like? Well, very quickly, if you want to think of like a, a sandwich, you've got one piece of bread to start, you've got gospel, you've got grace, you've got identity in Christ, you've got status, justified, you've got confirming, affirming words. You are in Jesus. That's how it starts. I'm grateful for you. Grateful for your faith. Then, after that, hey, beloved, here is how the redeemed live. That's the middle. And then, typically, signing off with more grace and peace and hope and Christ. That's how the apostles engage the saints. It's instructive for us. Paul knows that the saints have been given life by God through faith in Christ. The Christian life is the given life. Heavenly, eternal life, not achieved, but received by faith in Christ. This is how we've been born again. And so, Paul does not seek to give exhortations and precepts for Christian living until he has first proved that all of our righteousness is found in Jesus Christ and is given to us by God. Now we can talk about how we live our lives. Now we can talk about conduct. Now we can exhort. Now we can give precepts, having made it crystal clear as to how we have been found righteous. This is the main difference, you understand between the gospel and philosophy. Philosophers wax eloquent all the time about morality and good and beautiful things, but this is different. This is what makes Christianity utterly unique from every other world religion or moral system because we begin always and only with Christ for sinners, righteousness given. And then we move on to consider how we live in light of that. Paul writes the way that he does because he knows, don't miss this either, that the mercy of God in Christ Jesus is the greatest motivator of obedience and is the most powerful driver of godly living that there is. There are other motivations, no doubt about it, but the mercy of God in the face of Jesus Christ is the greatest by far. It is what will fuel and sustain the godly. And Paul knows that. Why he writes the way that he writes. Think about this letter and the things that Paul has already expounded. And then think about your life. You believe the scriptures. So do I, by God's grace. And Paul began this letter talking about how he desired to be with the saints in Rome so that he could preach them the gospel. And then he expounded upon how in the gospel, the righteousness of God is given to ungodly people. And then he makes it very clear that you and I and every other human being born of Adam are lawbreakers and have been sold under sin and thereby stand rightly condemned by the holy God who made us. He 
heralds and holds out the righteous standard of the law at a spiritual level, and it crushes us all. But then explains to us the power and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. Yes, it's true. The law shuts your mouth, shuts my mouth. We can't meet its standard, but God's righteousness is given to sinners by faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what all of Scripture had said would happen. It's by grace and not merit. It's by faith and not works. And having been justified and united to Christ, we will be with him. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Just like Adam represented us in the garden, Christ represents everyone who turns from themselves and trusts him. We've been united to him. We've been baptized into him. This is why we don't go on sinning. We hold fast to our confession that we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ and that the Lord has done this and that we have been justified from sin's guilt and set free from its tyranny and have now become obedient from the heart, loving the law of God in our inner man. Acknowledging all along, God makes it plain that in the flesh we are still weak while we love his law in our hearts. And in the midst of that war, the spirit and the flesh, in the midst of that war, we trust Christ alone who fulfilled all of the law's righteous requirements, and there is no condemnation for you or me. This is the message that Paul has been expounding. And we can trust every single promise that God has ever made because God has always kept his word. His word hasn't failed. He has planned from all of eternity to save a people and not a single one has been or ever will be lost. And so we groan for now. We await a homeland that we know he'll give us. And we look to that day when we will see him with our own eyes, not by faith any longer. And all of this prompts the saints to say, thank God and praise be to his name. How great is his wisdom? How magnificent is his grace? Now, in light of that, you tell me how you want to live. Tell me, how do you want to live? This is why Paul writes the way he did. He does. Every saint in this room is like, brother, I want to honor him. I want to obey. I want to live for him. I want him to look magnificent. May it be. May it be so much for grace and godliness being opposed to each other. That is nonsense. Nothing is a greater motivator toward obedience than the grace of God in the gospel. Just a brief observation before we move forward. The same people who object that The grace of the gospel will lead to lawlessness. The same people who object that the grace of the gospel will lead to lawlessness will also buck against a number of the prescriptions that are coming in Romans 12 through 15. They will. Prescriptions about loving others. Prescriptions about bearing with one another. Prescriptions about bearing with the weak. Prescriptions about issues of conscience in the church, how to relate to government. Just an observation. In the mind of Paul, our union with Christ is the ground of all Christian living. And the saints say amen, and we look back to the text. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we, beloved, you realize the Lord calls us saints. We are sinners, true. And we are saints because of what Christ has done. And you realize that as God's people, we have been set apart by him and for him. That'll change your perspective on your life. In light of that, we clearly are to stop living for ourselves. Don't be so myopic. Don't be so short-sighted. Don't be so selfish and small-minded. Don't live for you anymore. We now seek to live in dedication, in service to the Lord. You remember, we've thought about this a little bit already, and you're aware of Ephesians and 1 Peter and some of the other things written in the Scriptures that through our union with Christ, do you know what we, the saints, are being built into? We're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter writes, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So as priests in God's house, you've heard of the priesthood of the believer, right? That's a lot of what we're talking about right now. As priests in God's house, we are called to offer worship and service to our covenant Lord. Through our union with Jesus and our incorporation into the household of God and holy priesthood, we are living sacrifices. We have been raised to walk in newness of life. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, by the way, God has prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And so we do. We are called to a holy life, bearing fruit that is commensurate with the gospel of Christ. And we strive to live accordingly. Verse 2, Paul writes, do not be conformed to this world, or quite literally, do not be conformed to this age. You realize that before God made us alive, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we followed the course of this world. That's the language of Paul in Ephesians 2.1. And we were ruled by our passions and our cravings. We also were in bondage to the God of this world, the evil one himself. So Paul, in this verse, in this phrase, do not be conformed to this world, do not be conformed to this age, is exhorting us to avoid things in the world that are contrary to God's law. Very plain. And keep in mind, too, I think included in this exhortation is this principle. You realize that all of the priorities and all of the conversation of this world are concerned exclusively with this life. Paul is saying not only avoid things that are contrary to God's law, but don't think like the world does. 
don't converse and live and act as though this is all there is. You know, just as I do, that we are pilgrims and sojourners awaiting the world to come and living for the life to come, not this one. That's what he means here. Don't be conformed to this world, to this age. But, he says, he goes on, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Those last three descriptors are just modifying the will of God, right? The will of God is what is good and acceptable and perfect. You understand that. When Paul writes the words, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, He is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit that has begun in us at regeneration and affects the entirety of our inner being. Paul uses the word mind here to convey much more than just cognitive process. He is not simply saying Learn how to think correctly so that you'll live well. Now, that's true. Right thinking drives right living. Amen. But he's saying a lot more than that here. He is pointing to the renewal of our inner man at the level of our understanding, at the level of our affections, at the level of our will. He is using the word mind much like he did in Romans chapter 7. You remember verses 22 and 23, they go this way. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, like in my flesh, another law waging war against the law of my mind, right? And he's using mind there to mean more than just his brain. He's talking about that inner being piece. That's how he uses the word mind here. And when it comes to the renewal part, Again, this is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. You remember the language of Titus 3, where Paul writes to Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So we are renewed by the ministry of the Spirit. Our minds are renewed According to God's law and God's gospel, our minds are renewed according to his mercy and grace and goodness. Our minds are renewed according to our union with Christ. Our minds are renewed according to, here's one, God's great love for us. And it is through this renewal of our inner being wrought by the Holy Spirit, that we will discern the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, both of the things that I'm about to say are true. God is the one who does the work of this renewal, and we live intentional lives, making conscious decisions that are in step with this renewal. I'll repeat that. These things are both true. God is the one who does the work of renewal. And we live intentional lives, making conscious decisions that are in step with this renewal. There is no tension in that whatsoever. We've considered this before. We're talking about our sanctification. 
We're talking about the transformation of our lives. We participate in it by virtue of the fact that we have been made alive. And God is the only one who changes hearts and minds and wills. And he does so through the various means that he has appointed. Which brings us to point two. Point two is entitled, God has a plan for your life. It's called the church. God has a plan for your life. It's called the church. I'm going to give a disclaimer here before diving in further. Paul applies the glorious doctrines that he has expounded to the church in Rome. That's what he's doing beginning in Romans 12. And his application, obviously, is applicable to more than just the church of Rome. It's applicable to any local church. So naturally, in being a pastor here at Covenant Baptist Church that meets in Arden, North Carolina, I am going to seek to apply these things to our local church. That's only natural. That said, do not understand that I am saying that anyone here must be a member of CBC or must give themselves specifically to CBC in order to be faithful to the Lord. That is not what I'm saying. So don't hear that. Not at all. We have freedom in Christ to be a part of any gospel preaching church we choose. That said, if you are a member of Covenant Baptist Church, or if you plan to become a member of Covenant Baptist Church, take these things to heart for God's purposes in and through this congregation. If you're visiting with us today and you're a member of a church elsewhere, take these things to heart for the sake of your local church. If you're here and you're looking for a church to join, take these things to heart for the sake of whichever congregation you will become a part of. Cool? Everybody tracking? Great. I just won't, don't want to be misunderstood. Let's look at verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul here again acknowledges his apostolic position, and he acknowledges that that's because of God's grace to him. You realize that that's true for Paul, but it's also true for every single person to whom he writes And it's true for all of us here today. The gifts, the position, the role of all other believers in any local church are equally God's gifts of grace. That's where Paul's going to go, to write of the gifts and the function of every member of the body of Christ according to God's design. Paul had given significant encouragements and exhortations in verses 1 and 2. We just considered them. Significant exhortation. Few things, if any, would render those exhortations ineffective more than pride. Few things would render those exhortations ineffective more than high thoughts of self. And so, Paul calls the saints in Rome to humility and sober thinking regarding each individual's place 
in the body of Christ and each individual's need of others. We ought not have too high an opinion of ourselves or of our gifts. And on the flip, we ought not engage in pious-sounding false humility. Just to be done with that. We are called to think soberly, to think moderately about our own gifts. We should not overrate them, true, but we should not depreciate them either, acting like they don't exist. That's effectively a slap in the face to the Holy Spirit who gave them. We acknowledge, of course, we acknowledge the Lord's grace in giving them. We must. And we seek to steward them well. In all of this, we do so, Paul says, according to the measure of faith God has given. So not only does God give faith generally, but every degree of faith that you or I might have is a gift from him. Very interesting. This too serves what? Serves to humble us and ground our perspective. Even the faith by which we've been united to the Lord Jesus Christ is given. Verses four and five, put your eyes there. For as in one body, we have many members or parts, right? This is the analogy of the human body. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So Jesus has made us one body as his people. He has given us fellowship and connection to one another in himself. He is the bond that holds us together. And Paul employs here an analogy that's very understandable. The human body and all of its parts. Consider how this applies to the church. So there is, of course, the reality of the whole, the whole body. And then there is the need for the sake of the whole body. There is the need for each part to serve its function. Each part has its own distinct function. And here's one. No one part can do everything. Nor does any one part of the body appropriate to itself the functions of others. You're tracking with me. Eyes and hands, right? Need both. They have different roles to play. The eye would not appropriate to itself the role of the hands or vice versa. That's not how it works. Continuing on in this analogy, the members of the body can only function together. Separately, they cannot function. You understand that with the human body. You know, the the heart is not the foot, but without Without the heart, the foot can't function. You understand this. The collective whole is needed. So there is a critical distinctness amongst the members, and there is an essential mutual dependency amongst the members. Critical distinctness and essential mutual dependency. That's the illustration. Every member must work together 
for the mutual benefit of one another. So that's individual. And for the collective benefit of the body, the whole. Considering these things, beloved, should powerfully serve to unite us. Start to think like this about each other, need for each other, the various gifts and roles that we play, and how every single member is necessary, and how no one member can do it all. And I need you, and you need me, and we need us. That serves to unite congregation. Seeing our collective need of Christ knits our hearts together, absolutely. And seeing our need of one another should stir our affection for each other. It should stir our gratitude for each other. It should stir our mutual respect and appreciation for each other as well. While we're here, let me encourage you with this thought. Because maybe this is you as you sit here this morning and you you have a pretty low opinion of yourself as a saint of God. Well, take heart that even the weakest disciple, even the one who is convinced that he knows the least, even the one who thinks that she is the least gifted, even this one has his or her place in the body and is useful in that place. So do not think there's no place for me. There's no use for me. It takes us all. We need everyone. Verses 6 to 8, you can put your eyes there. Paul goes on, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So we're really good at missing the point, you know, and missing the forest for the trees and all that stuff. We're just good at that as fallen humans. A sadness would be looking at verses 6 to 8 or looking at this section and spending a ton of time extrapolating out five principles or five truths about what each one of these gifts are and are not. That ain't what it's for. Paul's point is right there in the beginning of verse 6. Having various gifts that God has given, let's use them. That's, That's it. If you've absorbed that, you've understood it. And then he's going to give some examples of what gifts are. It's not an exhaustive list. We are going to observe the variety there. Let's, before I get way ahead of myself, let's make a few comments. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. The Lord, in his wisdom, gives gifts to members of the body. Now, he does not distribute these gifts equally. He gives to each member an appropriate portion. Everything that the Lord does is good, right? Amen? And this is no exception. His design in the church is magnificent, and it is wise. This design serves to humble us. We've already been thinking about humility. Now, we're going to be talking a lot about love for one another in the coming weeks, Lord willing. Our love for one another is what governs our interactions, and our love for one another is what even governs our exercise of Christian freedom. We're going to get there. But humility is also vital amongst the saints. Humility is perhaps the greatest moderator of our entire life in the church. Think on that. Maybe some this afternoon or this week to come. 
God's wisdom, though, in the design of the church is also shown in this reality. For the church to flourish, every member and every part is necessary. I'm going to keep hammering this for just a moment. Consider the words of John Calvin here. I think these are excellent words. He says, the society of the godly cannot exist except when each one is content with his own measure and imparts to others the gifts which he has received and allows himself in turn to be assisted by the gifts of others. That's necessary for the church to flourish. This is good, and it's the wisdom of God. God distributes gifts amongst the members of the church. He gives each of us a limited portion, and his design is this, that we would each be so focused on using our own gifts for the building up of the church that we would not seek to encroach on the gifts or functions of other people, nor would we resent the gifts of others or the place others have been given in the church. We will be so focused on using the gifts the Lord has given us for the building up of the body and for the good of the saints that we will have no desire or any thought of encroaching on the gifts or the positions of others, nor will we resent them for it. That's the design. You see how humility is required because in our fallen flesh, bitterness, resentment, encroachment, distrust, is natural as breathing to the corrupt flesh. It is in this way that I've been describing that the safety and the health of the church is preserved. And then Paul goes on, as I said, to give examples of gifts. Again, his emphasis is simple. Whatever gifts we have, we should use them well. Perhaps more important than me extrapolating out on what each of the gifts would signify, more important for our purposes is to see the diversity of the gifts that Paul writes here. Because some of these are clearly spiritual gifts bestowed upon us by the Spirit of God. That's obvious. But some of these gifts that are listed here, even in Romans 7, fall more under the categories of what we might call talents or abilities or even our constitutions in the way that the Lord has made us. So here's the the takeaway. In addition to whatever gift you have, use it. Let me put a little more flesh on that. Here's the takeaway. As Christians, we should see everything we possess as a gift bestowed by God, which we should cultivate and use for his glory and for the good of our brothers and sisters. I'll repeat it. As Christians, we should see everything we possess as a gift bestowed by God, which we should cultivate and use for his glory and for the good of our brothers and sisters. That is Paul's point. Brings us to point three. Point three is effectively further reflection on the need of every member of the body. So we're just going to keep trucking here. For us here at Covenant Baptist Church, reflecting further on the need of every member, consider no one person here at CBC is omni-gifted. No one person here is omnicompetent. Every person has a function to perform. We collectively are in need of each individual part, and we as a church are in need of each individual member. We have had, in the Lord's goodness to us, we've had a lot of growth here at CBC over the last two, three years. And we thank God for it, 
And with growth comes challenge. It does. So you, as the members of the congregation, should know that the elders of the church have regular conversations and spend time in prayer regularly considering how we can better equip us all for the work of ministry. How we can better equip us all in our discipling relationships. How we can better equip us all to care for one another and watch over each other to see these things that are happening happen all the more. It's necessary. The elders spend much time thinking and praying and talking about how we can more effectively use group meetings in the life of the church. Praying and working to see more elders raised up and identified and recognized. There is intentional investment in our deacons and an aim to see the diaconate continue to grow here, to see diaconal ministry thrive here. All of this is because we see the need for all of us to use our respective gifts in service to the body if this church is going to flourish. This is obvious to us from the perspective of wisdom and experience, but this is obvious to us first and foremost from the clear teaching of Scripture. The Lord has given us all, so I'm speaking to members of CBC, He has given us all gifts. Some of these are gifts of the Spirit in obvious ways. Some of these are talents and abilities. Some of these are things like time. You've got a lot of bandwidth because of the season of life you're in. Some of these are things like relational capacity. You do really well in having a number of relationships. Some of these gifts might even be the Lord has prospered the work of your hands and you have a lot of wealth and you're able to be generous. You're able to help people in times of need. May we all endeavor to use our gifts for the good of this congregation. May we all endeavor to use our gifts for the cause of Christ in and through this congregation. And may none of us ever sit and think, well, I just don't know that I've got that much to offer. If that's where you sit this morning, maybe some more thought and reflection is required. Maybe some conversations with a brother or sister in the church, with one of the pastors or one of the deacons would help you in thinking through how you can serve and use the gifts that you have. Just a few pastoral thoughts from me. So I'm being very clear. These are my pastoral thoughts to you. This is not thus saith the Lord, right? You do with these what you will. If you are sitting there wondering, what gifts do I have and how can I be useful in the church? Here's some things you shouldn't do. Don't take a spiritual gift inventory. Not gonna help you, okay? Because you're just going to manipulate that thing, and it's like, well, yeah, I think I, you know, I think that's where I want to land, and let me figure out how to get there. So, also, don't worry about what Myers Briggs personality type you are. Don't worry about what your enneagram number is. None of that stuff is helpful. I'm not saying that it can't help in any way, but do not look to those things as the determiner of what you should do or shouldn't do in the church. Start by asking this question: What am I good at? What have other people commented to me about in the course of my life? Hey, bro, hey, hey, sister, you're helpful. You're good at that. Think on that. What am I good at? Also ask yourself, what do I like doing? It is not wrong to ask that. We often think that service in the church has to be hard. It has to be drudgery. It, it doesn't. What do you like to do? Start there. And then here's the thing. Get involved. 
Do something. Come, like I said, talk to the elders. Have a conversation with a deacon and start serving. And the Lord will make it plain how you are gifted and useful for the sake of the body of Christ. I want to reiterate this too. Again, pastoral comments from me to you. Our various and respective gifts are not for us. My gifts are not for me. Your gifts are not for you individually. The gifts that we have are for the benefit of the church. They are for the benefit of others, benefit of our brothers and sisters. They are for the good of our neighbor. They are for, here we go, the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Think about your gifts that way. It's not about your personal fulfillment. With all due respect, you will be fulfilled in using your gifts for the cause of Christ. Don't misunderstand me. But if your main aim is to feel good, that's going to derail the train before it leaves the station. Think about your gifts being used for the exaltation of Jesus Christ and thereby for the glory of God himself. For this to go well and for this to work as the Lord intends, it is critical for each of us to get over ourselves. And this is hard for us to do even when it comes to serving in the church. We have to check our egos at the door. We've got to be willing to set aside our particular preferences and even our own comfort sometimes for the sake of loving our brothers and sisters and serving the body of Christ. And that is why Paul writes to the saints in Rome, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. May it be so here. Point four. This is a reflection on the corporate nature of the Christian life. The corporate nature of the Christian life. I'll acknowledge at the outset, this may not be true for people here in this particular gathering this morning, but it will be true for many of our friends in the church more broadly. That much of what I'm about to say sounds insane to the modern evangelical ear. So notice, as you look at Romans 12, 1 and following. Paul appeals to the saints to present ourselves to God as living sacrifices. Big deal. He appeals to us not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Big deal. Where does he then immediately go? Where does he start? God's design in the local church and our place in it. It's where he starts. That is not insignificant. That tells us a lot about how the Lord intends those exhortations in verse 1 and 2 to actually be accomplished. Put your eyes on verse 5. Don't miss these words. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. A fundamental piece of our identity in Christ is being a part of his body, the church. That's a big thing. Being a part of the church is not something that you or I do. It is a part of who we are in the Lord. Does that make sense? Being a part of the church is not something we do. It is a part of who we are in Christ. Paul does not have a category for the Christian life apart from the body of Christ. His default is that Christians live life in the church. Christian devotion is church-shaped. Christians will be nourished. Christ will be exalted. God will be glorified through the saints participating in the life of the body. That is where Paul 
is coming from. So what does this mean for us? It means that presenting ourselves to God as living sacrifices and not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds will occur precisely through our participation in the life of the church. Now, brother, are you saying that my private life as a Christian is unimportant? Not at all. By no means, to use a Pauline phrase, am I saying that. What I am saying is that the corporate drives the private. Now, I don't love the term private, but you understand how I'm using it. The Christian life, Mark Dever used to say, still says, the Christian life is personal, but it's never private. He's exactly right about that. But you understand how I'm using the term private. Biblically, the emphasis is not on the private experience of Christ and religion as much as it is on the corporate experience of Christ and religion in the gathered church and in the fellowship of the saints. And again, like I said, that sounds crazy to many modern believers. How do you know that this is a problem in terms of how we in the modern church have been conditioned to think about these things? Well, ask somebody how they're doing spiritually. Just a Christian that you know maybe at work or at the gym or whatever, ask them how they're doing spiritually. Because instinctively, we give very private answers because we've been conditioned to do so. If someone asks, what is God teaching you these days? We have a sense that the expected answer is not, well, here is something that struck me from the sermon on Sunday. The expected answer, we assume, is not, well, you know, I've been thinking about the significance of the Lord's table, and this has affected me. No, we would assume if somebody says, what's God teaching you these days, that they are expecting to hear about some unique insight derived from a private experience or some kind of special revelation, not the ministry of the church, the sermon, the table, the songs, the prayers, life with the saints. Like we say, it's a dead giveaway, right? We're not thinking well. We tend to think that we will be useful in a corporate setting if our personal devotional lives are strong. That's backwards. It is the corporate realities of the gathered church and the fellowship of the saints that will drive and fuel our personal devotion. That's how this works. So, some, a few little handles and takeaways for us. Prioritize this gathering on Sunday. As you're doing it, do it all the more. Prioritize being here together on the Lord's day. Plan your life around it. I realize me standing up here as a pastor, this is you know, running the risk of sounding self-serving. Don't care. It's in the book. It's in the scripture. And it's like, brother, we're eager for you to apply God's word. We don't want you to apply it like that now. Plan your life around this gathering. Sunday morning, you realize, begins far before you wake up on the Lord's day. It does. Do not set yourself up to struggle to get to church. Do not set yourself up to struggle to be engaged in corporate worship. Plan your life around this and think backwards from it. Another thing, another handle for us, prioritize the fellowship of the saints. So plan time with your brothers and sisters. Spend time with each other on the Lord's day. As we're doing, do it all the more. Hang out with each other after service. Practice hospitality. 
have people over, spend the day together. Fill your social calendar with time with each other. Like I said, have people over. Take walks together. Get creative. It doesn't have to be the standard fare. Take a walk. Sure, you can grab a coffee. You can grab lunch or a drink. Work out together if you're into fitness. Go for a run. Ride bikes. If you like sports, watch a game together. Things like that. Fellowship of the saints. It's more encouraging than any of us often think it is. Now, real talk. There will be plenty of times that you don't feel like doing stuff. You might not feel like coming here on Sunday. And if you're anything like the Purdue's, there are times when we got people coming over or we're about to go and we're just kind of looking at each other like, I don't know, this wasn't a good week for this. You know, and it's just like, man, this is tough. It feels hard. And, and then, but we've done this enough times where we look at each other and we know like we're thankful for the fruit that's going to come. There has not been a single time that we've come here, and I trust this is true for you, not a single time you show up here, not a single time you have somebody over, not a single time you go to somebody's house and you don't leave thinking, man, I'm glad we did that because I'm encouraged. Just remember that when it's easier to just cancel plans or veg out on the couch and watch Netflix or something. You will not regret the investment that you make in these people. The Lord is faithful and he'll bless it. May we give ourselves to being here together on the Lord's day and may we give ourselves to being together as much as we're able outside of this gathering. It's been a long time. I'm closing, the, closing this thing down. I want to encourage us, just final couple of thoughts, to take heart in this pursuit. Be encouraged because the Lord is with us. He's with us. He will complete the good work that he has begun in us. He will keep us by his power unto salvation. For this congregation that is called Covenant Baptist Church that meets here in Arden, North Carolina, beloved, the good shepherd has called us each by name. We have heard his voice, and so we follow him. It's a sweet thought, you know, that all of us as members of this congregation are Christ's sheep, walking together after him. It's hard sometimes, scary sometimes, no doubt about it. But what do we keep saying to each other? Look at him. He's up. He's there. Keep on, right? Brother, don't get distracted by that. I understand, but don't get distracted by that. Look at him. He's here. Sister, don't be discouraged. I know it's hard, but look at him. Let's keep going. That's how we walk as the sheep of Christ's pasture. And it's a privilege to walk together like that. And the Lord is faithful. He loves us. He knows us. He gave his life for us. And you know what he says about you? He says to the saints of Covenant Baptist Church that meet in Arden, North Carolina, every Lord's Day, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. What he says about us. Not because of us. Because of his mercy and grace and love. So in all of our interactions, beloved, let that be on our lips. Let's encourage one another with the words and with the love of our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.